0: Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: There's been for 20 years or so too many retailers, too much inventory. There's just too much square footage per human being in America. There always has been. That's one thing. Lack of creativity, I think, is another thing.
2: What you get is just a deflationary trend in in retail, and I think we've been going through that. Do we need department stores anymore in the age of Amazon and the internet? What role do you think a department store serves now?
1: It was a matter of profit, not a matter of how big can you get and how much volume can you do? And it's kind of like this endless amount of opening stores are looking for opportunity. And they always would say every three years, this is not the end of the department store business. Well, it's pretty much near the end.
2: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. This week on BOF Live, I sat down with American retail legend, Mickey Drexler. Now, the American retail environment has been buffeted by the coronavirus crisis, with retailers from Neiman Marcus to JCPenney, J.Crew, and The Gap all struggling in the face of a -a once-in-a-lifetime economic and public health crisis. I spoke to Mickey about how American retail ended up here in the first place, how he sees consumer behavior, changing and what the retail landscape might look like when the pandemic is behind us. So here's Mickey Drexler inside fashion. Hi, everyone. This is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to BOF Live. We have a legend with us today for BOF Live. I'm I'm pleased to welcome Mickey Drexler. The former CEO of Gap and J. Crew, and uh, kind of a, a legend in the in the in the American uh, retail and fashion world. And um, I caught up with Mickey uh, briefly on the phone uh, about a week ago and asked whether he would join us today for a conversation because there's been so much uh, tumult and turmoil in the American retail. Uh, landscape over the last couple of weeks, I thought it would be really great to have someone like Mickey help us all to navigate the changes that are happening uh, and make sense of what's going on, and and also to paint a picture of what the future might look like um, as uh, on the other side of this crisis that we find ourselves in. So uh, welcome, Mickey, to to BOF Live. Nice to be here, Muran. Appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start, Mickey, uh, before we dive into the topic at hand. If you could just tell us a little bit about how you're doing, how your quarantine has been, what you've been doing uh, to keep yourself occupied. I find that everyone is um, finding new ways to keep their minds and bodies occupied. Occupied at this time.
1: Well, uh, I'm going a little crazy. Uh, I, uh, I have schpilkas. I can't stand still. Uh, that's a Yiddish term for ants in my pants. And every day is kind of a repeat of yesterday. I have no idea what Tuesday versus Saturday is like. And uh, I get up every morning, and I'm not living in a home. I'm living in a hotel, but that's such a long story, uh, and that makes it less fun. Uh, I get up every day, take a walk with my wife. My kids are one in New York and one's in in East Hampton. And I walk for about an hour and a half uh, along the beach here in Miami not on the beach because you're not allowed to and then I come home till the next morning uh, home or whatever wherever I am and life is uh, I actually like without work I'd be dying I miss schmoozing because it's a favorite hobby of mine uh, my wife uh, is very serious about keeping us isolated and quarantined uh, so,
2: as, as she
1: should yeah, be as and, she and, should uh, be so it's it's almost surreal that we're living this way, uh, all of us. It's just unbelievable, and uh, I, I don't think anyone really knows what it's going to look like on the other side. But uh, it is what it is, and I can't wait till it's normal. I do FaceTime with my grandchild, uh, so I'm getting to know. She's a year and a half, and that's my relationship with her. and uh, And that's that's what it's like. It's not. It's just not easy for any yeah. of us.
2: There's a daily routine. I think that we're all developing and I guess it's about injecting moments of connectivity, moments of exercise, moments of reflection and, and moments of work and mixing that all, but while being in the same physical space, which is kind of challenging because it's hard to transition between all of those different. Really modes. <laughs> um, but Mickey, I, I, I was really excited to talk to you because obviously, you know, as a, as a media publication that covers the global fashion industry, um, of which, the, you know, the American market still plays an incredibly important part. Watching from over here in London, what's happening in the retail environment in the United States, it's been harrowing. You know, um, some of the big titans of the American retail landscape are teetering, on the edge of bankruptcy, some have already filed for bankruptcy. Some are planning for liquidation, including two of the companies that you used to lead. Uh, you know, the Gap um, has been, you know, withholding rent payments, you know, furloughing its workers, trying to reorganize and restructure its operations. And J Crew um, has obviously um, filed for bankruptcy as a way of doing a restructuring of the organizations. and they're not alone, right? This is J. Crew, This is Neiman Marcus. This is The Gap. This is Lord & Taylor. Yeah, and as you look across the American retail landscape, it's, it's pretty grim out there. And so the first question I just wanted to, uh, you know, to ask you is, you know, how did we end up here that so many of these big American retailers find themselves in a position where, you know, they're teetering? Because, you know, the, the, the companies that seem to be surviving seem to be or seem to be kind of getting through at least up until now are the ones that were strong going into this crisis, but um, many American retailers were were already um suffering before this all started, and this has kind of become um, the kind of final you know the the, the proverbial straw uh, against the camel's back so t- talk to me a bit about you know, how, how we ended up here in the first well, place.
1: Uh, first thing I want to say is uh, I speak to a lot of people every day to learn and do whatever. Uh, most people will say, I have no answer to, to your question. Uh, I mean, I have one opinion on how we ended up here, but most of us don't know what the other side's going to look like. In my own opinion, uh, and I think statistics, uh, there's been for 20 years or so, too many retailers, too much inventory. And I think what's happened because of uh, coronavirus in one short swoop, what probably could have happened 10 or 15 years ago, too much uh, out there, uh, too much choice, uh, too much inventory, drove down prices, uh, drove down margins, increased off-price businesses. And there, uh, well, if you look at TJ Maxx, I think the biggest, most profitable uh, department store in America, if not the world. And they have a great merchant, uh, Carol Meyeritz running running that night. I think the great merchant part is also part of it. Uh, but I think there's just too much square footage per human being in America. There always has been. Uh, that's one thing. Lack of creativity, I think, is another thing. Although uh, with too many stores and too much choice, uh, what you get is just... Uh, uh, a deflationary trend in in retail. And I think we've been going through that Uh, very simply stated. It's just too much assortment out there, too much goods, not enough special, not enough unique, lots of commodities. Amazon certainly influenced a lot of this uh, and that's life. Uh, And uh, so could have happened 20 or 10 years ago because I always ask the question, Uh, And I didn't know, none of us knew about this. Well, some people did. Bill Gates, I guess, or whatever was coming, is what would you do? And then you'd name companies. If so-and-so didn't exist, would you miss them? And there was so many, no, I wouldn't miss them uh, if they weren't here anymore. And now what's happening is a lot of them are going away, either uh, unfortunately because uh, they have no cash or they're running out of cash, Uh, And they might be good at what they do. And the rest, you just won't miss them. And uh, their balance sheet was weak.
2: When you say their balance sheet was weak, you mean they were heavily indebted, right? Heavily indebted. Or plus, and I don't, you know,
1: right now, I mean, sitting with all these empty stores with huge inventory will push people over the edge if they might have survived uh, longer than they probably would have. But this kind of cleans up the landscape. Of, uh, I'll call a lot of markdown companies and others who sadly will go away because, you know, maybe they're just undercapitalized and they might be run creatively and they might have
2: nice goods. Uh, the, 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 the report card's not in yet. I don't think it's close to being in. So it begs the question then, if, if there are too many stores, and I think, you know, there's one statistic that's, you know, frequently cited that there, there's more store space in America per customer or per person than there is anywhere in the world by a long shot. So there's too many stores. There's too many malls. There's too much product. Um, there's too many brands. How did, how did they all last this long in the first place? You know, w- w- explain that to me because I don't understand how that can happen.
1: Well, the, the, the answer I always get is there's free money out there for everyone. I'm not an economist. I'm a merchandiser. Uh, and what free money means is maybe really low interest rates, borrow money, plus uh, venture capital, like, oh, here, here's 10 million, here's 15 million, let's take a shot. I kind of call it betting in the dark half the time. I, I sat in a venture capital office uh, for my first year out of J. Crew, and i visit with companies, and it wasn't very hard to get money. It was actually quite easy. Uh, Just do a fancy Dan presentation, sound like you know what you're talking about, uh, with great confidence, have no experience. Oh, we're going to invest in you. And then what I've learned is if they hit one or two or three out of 10, they're very happy. And uh, no one says that or they don't talk about it. But uh, and I'm not blaming venture capital. I'm maybe blaming too much cash around America uh, to take a shot. And when I would look at the companies, you know, I'm, I'm known to be very critical. I am. I, very few things impress me. And I'm saying, are you kidding? You're going to invest in this when there's so many of that? But, but I think free money, uh, betting, uh, taking a shot, uh, I guess in PE, the two out of 20 or whatever the, the deal is, makes it very attractive to buy companies, sell companies. And, and it got us to a place where we are. Uh, and, uh, to a degree, um, and, you know, you weren't looking at these with a sharp eye maybe in fact, in, in my world and apparel, it's amazing how people might evaluate opportunity without kind of doing the surgery, you know, or doing whatever before, uh, and money people are different than operating people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very, very much different, uh, they probably make more money in a sense because they're playing with money, and they're not playing with product. Uh, and I don't think they're playing with vision. And I don't think they're playing with a, a down the road shot. Now that being said, there's more startups, and I don't know what's going to happen. This is my own personal opinion all this is how many of them are actually going to survive and how many will make money. I, I'm used to, uh, and I started Madewell and I started Old Navy. Uh, while I was running, it was a matter of profit, not a matter of how big can you get and how much
2: volume can you do. All right. So basically, Mickey, what you're saying is there's been a lot of capital floating around, cheap capital, either in the form of debt that's you know you know coming from the capital markets at very low interest rates that enables big investors to take bets on an industry that they don't really understand. And so they're artificially, in a way, propping up some of these retailers that without that kind of, you know, we talk about smart money, maybe we call it not smart money, but with that not smart money, it kind of, it extends the life of these um, retailers maybe beyond what they would have had if they didn't have that money. And then the people taking ownership of these companies don't really know how to operate them. You just, you just called yourself a merchandiser, right? And I think that's a really important uh, role for everyone to understand because the role of the merchant has also kind of, of faded in the, in the last few years. There's been a lot more merchandising by numbers and algorithms and data and less instinct and taste and differentiation. So when you walk into stores, many of the department stores, everything kind of looks the same not just within the store from brand to brand to brand, but also between stores. So talk to us more about the fundamental importance of the merchandiser and operator in making a fashion retailer successful.
1: Well, I, I, I do call myself a merchant, uh, and, and uh, uh, that's what I do for a living. In fact, someone said to me the other day, we have a little, beautiful little startup. I really love Alex Mill. And they said, there's 10 of us. And two people said, well, we need someone to work uh, at what you do. They, they said, because you're working like you, you're, you're looking at everything. You're working at such a detailed level. And don't you want someone to help you? I said, I've been doing the same thing and looking at every style for 40 years. Why should it change now? I'm a little older now than I was when I uh, started. Uh, running companies, but uh, that's what I do for a living, I said. I look at every style, and actually, I like doing that. And I look at every uh, email, and I look at every this. I am a huge micromanager. And if you're not a micromanager, I don't think you're doing your job that well. Uh, in retail, or in my opinion, in anything, take care of your customers, uh, in anything. Uh, I just like micromanaging. It's not liking it. I think you're forced to when you have customers. Uh, And and, uh, most companies, in my own opinion, aren't micromanagers. I I was at uh, two car companies in a design room, uh, big car companies. And I went to visit the CEO, his friends, friends or whatever. And when I went to the design room, he didn't go. Both of them, they didn't go. I was there to look at cars and just to have some fun. I wanted to do a car uh, related to Old Navy. Uh, You know, we had those pickup trucks. I said, well, let's do a pickup truck. That's kind of a new one. So we go into the design room. Seven people designing one car and the wheels. And I said this to the CEO. I said, that's a really good looking car. He showed me a car that they're working on. It's a good looking car with really ugly wheels. And (laughs) he thought I was crazy. And I said, I wouldn't buy a car with ugly wheels. It ruins the look of a car. And it's true. And, you know, it's just what I live with. Uh, maybe it's not normal to not like a car with ugly wheels, but uh, but the CEO couldn't care less in both cases, uh, even as a courtesy to me visiting with him.
2: Uh, so, and- so how, like when you're working with design teams, right? Um, you know, the word micromanagement isn't necessarily a word that people use with positive connotations, right? But you're using it as a kind of a necessity to get all of the details, right? I mean, how did your, if you think that's one of the things it takes to be successful in, in, in the job of running a, a fashion retail company, like how did your design teams and the people around you feel about that?
1: Well, first of all, it's not just, uh, micromanagement applies to anything where there's a customer. Yeah. And uh, I want to know, that every customer is responded to within X amount of time, and in a startup it's different. I encourage Alex and Samsac write a note, call them. I used to do that in Gap or in J Crew or I used to call or whatever. They're kind of shocked, but I think uh, it's the design. One thing: I'm not a designer, and uh, so I don't micromanage design unless when the collection's done because I can't deal with looking at the the drawn pictures, Uh, I'll say that the zipper, it's not that I'm, I'm not a designer, but I I look at something and I feel that it doesn't come together as a painting. Uh, And it's not a painting. I, I, maybe I sound dramatic, but a a bad button can actually ruin something or a too long collar. And I don't know. I was born with, kind of this weird thing, you know, noticing what's wrong with things. It's not easy to live uh, like I do, <laughs> but I do notice uh, things that don't fit in the puzzle. Right. So if, if you speak to all the designers I've worked with, uh, I try to be inspirational. Uh, I try to be, uh, if I don't like the goods, I don't like the goods. And if they don't look commercial, then we can't sell. And that's There's no negotiation on good and bad. But I don't. uh, I try to inspire. I try to push. I send emails out. I do what I do. I shop stores, and I hope I serve a service for the designers, and that's what I do. I'm not a designer. Uh, I I know what a good classic looks like, and and that's what I do. But uh,
2: yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, going back to this idea of merchandising by numbers, someone in the audience uh, who's watching has said. um, Here's a question. Do you feel that retail via venture capital, i.e. people with ideas but no practical experience in retail, manufacturing, or their chosen market versus traditional retail, pumping out products based on buyer's calculations instead of instinct, do you think that's what's hastened this so-called retail apocalypse? You know, and how do you find the right balance between the instinct and the numbers, taking risks and doing what's proven?
1: You know what's interesting? I did algorithms when I was 23 years old. They didn't call them that. You need to be good in math and good in merchandising to be a successful merchant. I spend a lot of my life with math in my head. Here they have, but you can't do math without having the product thing. So what's happened is we have planners, no offense. I've worked with them for years and love them all. But a merchant sees in front and around corners, they feel it, they see it, and in my opinion, they have a taste level or a point of view on what they're going to do with with the merchandise uh, the, the financial uh, look to me, I say you're going to go in and be a merchant uh, you haven't or a doctor, you haven't done the surgery as a doctor, you haven't done the surgery. You know how many mistakes I've made in my career? so many more mistakes than most people even try to. Make and then I fail. I succeed. Like I had a, an argument yesterday. It Was today? Yesterday I argue every day. So we have a shirt at um, Alex Mill. It's called the uh, paper cloth pullover shirt. It was yesterday on a. This is what I do. And I said uh, we were thinking of it, and it's actually been selling very well on sale. Everything is unfortunately on sale these days, and I was saying. Why wouldn't we carry that shirt? We sell a lot of paper cloth. It's a, it's a fabric we call. We sell tons of it. So I'm thinking it's a, a pullover, short sleeve shirt. And I said to the team of 10, I said, what about carrying this through through next spring? So I get two an- Now, I knew what my answer was. I said, you know, one third of the states have short sleeves. It's a pullover. It's selling terrifically well. And two people give me a quick answer. No. Now, uh, fortunately, they weren't the merchant, but they said no, because it's short sleeve. You don't need it. I said, let me ask you something. Why do you say no? I said, do you know the answer? I said, you have 50 or 100 people wear short sleeves. You're talking about your best shirt. It's online. Online sells every place in the world, hot and cold and this set. Anyway, it was not a smart answer uh, in terms of the no. I don't like no's. I like, listen, and maybe, and let's try it. I said, try 50 or 100. You know, I've seen 50 and hundreds end up being $20 million businesses. And you have to have an open mind, a sense of instinct, and willing to take the risks. I mean, that's the way it works in, in, in the business. So, uh, so, the merge, so the algorithm thing, which I laugh at, because I was doing my algorithms. I, I called it like the spreadsheet. It was me. I didn't have planners. And then you look at the item, and you start to figure out how big and how long. My first big item at Bloomingdale's, if I'm boring you, please interrupt. It was the biggest unit buy ever made at Bloomingdale's. And you know how I picked the item, the the volume of it? It's a huge item. Tuesday was a t-shirt. Tuesday in February, first Tuesday, or Monday when it came in, we sold X amount. So then you start doing the math in your mind. Well, Tuesday in February means what in June? And, and I like to look at almost hourly selling because once you break in an item, you can never get the full impact of how high up is. A little bit's guessing, but it really is, uh, if, if they call that an algorithm, that's what I did. I still do it. Tell me what you sold the first day because by the third day, if you are broken on the item, there's no credibility. You can't forecast something. You know, if you sold three apples the first day, and you're looking at a full week selling. Hello, don't look at a full week selling. Look at the first hour. So that's my story on, <laughs> on, on algorithms and math versus product. It's a very mathematical thing that goes on. And fortunately, I went to uh, Bronx Science. I was terrible in science, but I was really good in math. Uh, and uh, you know, I knew looking back, I was good because I had a great teacher. and He was very inspirational, which is a whole other thing
0: With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit eBay.com for terms.
2: The other thing I wanted to, to test with you, Mickey, is like clearly, this is going to dramatically change the way we shop. You know, and some of the stores are starting starting to open here in Europe. They've been open in China for the past few weeks now and already you know consumer behavior is starting to shift as it pertains to shopping In the short term people are generally fearful of going to stores and you know there's a lot of precautions and measures that retailers are taking to make customers feel safe but these are going to reduce footfall in stores and all of the kind of traffic and energy. That retail stores have. So I'm wondering, like, have you got any thoughts about how all of this is going to change the way people shop?
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I spoke to my friend Andrew uh, yesterday, who is uh, in the wholesale business. Uh, and Andrew is a great wholesaler and, and great at what he does. So uh, he has four or five companies he's invested in. And we, uh, he was telling me last night, and by the way, I spend a lot of my life talking to people who are smart, who know something I don't know. So, uh, so we speak, because we're good friends, and he's an advisor to uh, the company. And he's eh, one of the better, uh, he's at the top of the, uh, you know, the pyramid on, uh, on being uh, good at what he does. And he was describing, hope, I hope he doesn't mind that I'm saying this. He said in three or four stores yesterday. Now, this is, a, this is for me, all, this is all I know. So I learned this yesterday. Very little traffic, very high transactions. So that's day one. Now, I'll talk to him or whoever every day-ish if you want. So I, I think people are going to be really afraid. And we're trying to figure it out when we open our store which is not, we have one store, by the way. Thank God we only have one store. because I can't imagine going through this with even 10 stores because we would would be in trouble. And you think about how many people are in trouble. So we have inventory sitting only in one store in Manhattan. But uh, I'm going to, I don't know the answer. You have to be afraid if you're normal, a customer. You have to be afraid. Uh, The uh, online business is wildly growing like crazy today. This it is what it is, and uh, we'll see. I, I don't think we're back to normal all year. It's not going to be normal. What do you do with the clothes that someone else tried on? We're all trying to figure it out.
2: It's interesting this idea of the footfall falling, but the basket size, the kind of overall uh, purchase amount increasing. Because I guess for those people who do venture out into a retail store, they're going with a real sense of purpose. It's like less about browsing and shopping as entertainment and more shopping with purpose. So, you know, when people enter the store with a purpose, I guess they'll have a tendency to shop more. Yeah,
1: I think so. But uh, I don't know if you're going into stores. Well, I don't really shop in stores anyway, but I'm not going. And, And some of our people are afraid to work. And you know what I said yesterday, I said, don't go if you're afraid, because there's nothing worse than being afraid and worrying and being anxious about catching, uh, you know, the virus. I, I think it's going to take, I, I think the whole year is going to be pretty much a promotional year. People have so much inventory to get rid of right now. Uh, it's extraordinary. We started and we're small, but for us, it was a lot of inventory. It wasn't for anyone else, but we're tiny and we and we self-fund the business, so I don't have someone who's an investor saying do this, do that, and do the other thing. Uh, but uh, we, we're pretty much think most things will be of good value, except except things that people want. And what people want is special, they want unique, they want fashion. I don't think that's going to stop. And I think there's going to be a desperate run for cool fashion if it's out there now. I don't know how much is out there. I'm usually, I'm not impressed. I haven't been for years with what the choices are out there. But we'll see what happens. Uh, Our business, when we have something really good, it sells really well. And again, we're tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, If we have something that's more commodity-ish, it doesn't sell so well. Put it on sale and please
2: get rid of it now. We are doing markdowns so that we can be clean going forward. So- Discounting is an important question that I think a lot of retailers and brands are grappling with right now. If you were running a big retail store, how would you balance the trade-off between discounting to clear that inventory to to kind of generate cash versus damaging long-term brand equity and and kind of training the consumer to expect discounts in the future. How do you weigh those two things up?
1: Well This I'm going to make these short answers uh, About 30 or 40 years ago. I I, know, I never kind of believed I learned one thing uh, uh, Is that I don't want to carry any product in the world that someone else has Because then, and this was when I was at Bloomingdale's, 23 years old, brand new baby buyer. And there was a discounter across the street. I'd wake up one morning. I knew it was going to happen. I was a woman's bathing suit buyer, among other things. And they were on sale. And therefore, my inventory that day in June was worth one third of what it was worth the day before. Why? We had a policy, you meet prices. Uh, so, in fact, the... Um, I don't want to carry. And I learned that on my next, when I became president of Ann Taylor in 1980, I learned that because Brooks Brothers, who then was Brooks Brothers, had their own label in the clothes. And they were the most profitable of the five companies, three very mediocre, and there's Brooks Brothers and Ann Taylor. And I looked at their earnings and I said, my God. And it was really easy to figure out that they're not taking double markups. It was always a pretty good value, Brooks Brothers. And it was then much different than it is today, of course. And I learned from them and Benetton. Why Benetton? I was buying my son clothes at Benetton. I go in, easy to shop. And then you look at prices and and you figured out, hello, own the brand. Don't let someone else, um, you know, put it on sale and you're safe. And and today, what happens? And, and that's what, you know they talk about direct to consumer. It's been around for forty years. You know whether it was the limited or uh, when we converted to Ann Taylor, we opened Ann Taylor Studio. Uh, and I learned I didn't want to be with any uh, brand that uh, someone could mark down. And and I, I still believe that. Now that being said, how many brands do retailers control today? That uh, are theirs uh, why why do the trucks go to uh, TJ Maxx and Ross stores why because the inventory is there they're gonna have probably the uh, but if I'm a department store and bless them I can't depend upon uh, being out there because I don't control my pricing you don't control pricing and everyone has gotten to the habit two reasons of on sale one is you got always that discount is galore and number two, there's a double markup. The double markup on every item that gets sold in wholesale. You got the markup from the maker to the department store, and then the next markup is from the department store, the consumer. So essentially, a sale is really the real price. And I think the stores, I don't know, I haven't been in the department stores in a million years. The sale is just a... Uh, it's a leveler of the value, of the real value. But at least, uh, and customers know that. And that's why they're always on sale. By the way, it's not just them. It's even direct to consumers are on sale. And that's pretty easy. Uh, When you have a rough time, when the goods aren't right, you got to put them on sale. Plus, everyone else has the goods. And I'll never forget, uh, well, I've been through that too long a story but um it's, it's there's some great brands out there, but yeah, the goods aren't right it's It's pretty simple it It's not complicated. The customer's always looking for something right and something unique and something that's going to turn him or her on yeah, S- speaking
2: of customers looking for something right, um I did want to touch upon the department stores that you just mentioned, um, because. Of all the retailers in the landscape of of American fashion and retail, um, the department stores are the ones that seem to be the hardest hit. And I just wonder, like, you know, there's there's a, a report that's just come out today that says, you know, one of the investors or creditors at Neiman's is saying that Sachs and Neiman's should be merged, which I think has been a rumor in the market for a long time. But, I have an even more fundamental question, which is, do we need department stores anymore in the age of Amazon and the internet? Like, what what role do you think a department store serves now? Uh, I don't think you need them. But I sell department stores, so I have to be careful
1: with what I say. Uh, I don't think you need them. Even Amazon aside, I don't think Amazon's great in the fashion business at all. Uh, They could be, amazingly so. But I, I, think well, it's easy. You go here, you, you look up the brand, you say, oh, I want that, you order it, and usually you get a deal anyway. Uh, I don't. A department store is not. It's you know how many were there in, in the in the '60s? I started the business late '60s. There must have been, and they always would say every three years, this is not the end of the department store business. Well, it's pretty much near the end, and. Um, We'll see what happens. I, I think, uh, w- what's the purpose of a department store? You go in, you have huge assortments. If someone, and they, I don't know, I don't know Selfridge. People seem to love that in London. Is that the favorite? They, they must be pretty exciting at their assortments. I'm guessing. They probably have people with taste who are buying or good merchants, I'm guessing. Um, but there's no reason, unless the assortments are great and compelling and, and even if they're not, that they're, they're edited the right way. You know, I think editing is critical. Uh, you could have 10 people in a department store and one will, they'll all put the assortments together differently. So if I went into a store and it was perfectly edited, uh, I would, you know, I would uh, probably buy there. You know, it's, it's the editing, the
2: taste, the point of view, and lead, lead me to what I like. I think you're right, um, Mickey. We've been living in an era of hype. And you know, if, if anything, if this, if this situation can get us back to an era of substance and quality and value to use some of the words that you've used today, then um, I think the industry will be better for it and customers will be more engaged with fashion again. It won't just seem like this transactional thing. And if there's one line uh, I'm going to take away from this is that you've learned that growth is the enemy. Can you tell me more what you mean by that?
1: That's what financial investors want is growth. That's what people want from their stock price. And you do dumb things to get there. Uh, I'll never forget uh, with, well, I'll never forget any of the companies. Uh, uh, Gap, we, we were like a rocket. And all rockets slow down. But you're forced to open up. uh, Oh, and it's kind of like this endless amount of opening stores or looking for opportunity. I I think that there ought to be some understanding from the owners, uh, uh, and the owners could be the financial owners saying, let's get out. Now, on the other hand, what they do is as soon as there's extra cash to take out of the companies, they take it out. So, uh, and why? Because it's cash in their pockets. And it takes away from the liquidity and the long-term health of the balance sheet. But I found every, everyone wanted growth today. It's all growth. They think they're judged on growth. And, 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 the, the, and I could be wrong. The venture people say, how much sales are you doing? We have a little company, that's about four or $5 million. There's no imagination. Why? Alex Mill is done by the three of, we have a nice little team. And I say say to myself, I'm not trying to sell the company because I like not having an investor. I said, if someone had an imagination, imagination, they look at Alex Mill. Now, yeah, I, I sound like I'm, this is not an infomercial, but they look at the goods, they look at the style, they look at the marketing and say, it's got it. And they might look at the management and say, well, they've been there, done it many times. So I say this to financial friends of mine. I know them all. I said, can you explain something to me? Why wouldn't someone come to us and say, I want to invest now. I want to be part of the ride for the next five or six years. And the answer is, you got to have two or three stores. you got to have this. you got to do 10 or 15 million. You know, if you do a great painting, you don't have to have 20 great paintings. All you need is one. So I get a lot of calls now from people. Can you help us here? Can you help us there? Can you do this? I said, I love what I do. I said, and the biggest opportunity is what we're working on. I don't want to be in a SPAC where you, you know what a SPAC is or whatever, uh, where you buy a company that doesn't turn me on or someone else on. And the fact is, I don't want to be a CEO of a big company. I just don't. And the fact is, who's going to run it? I like a merchant to run companies. That's, I'm old-fashioned. I want a merchant to run a merchandising company. I want a back surgeon to do surgery. I want you know people who have the experience and the success on everything they do. And you mentioned before that they could start a company and they have no apparel experience, but they're good at algorithms. Hello. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, what can I tell you? Well, Mickey, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I knew it would be illuminating and provocative uh, as always. Um thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Uh thanks to all of you all around the world for joining us for BFS. Around the world, I think we've had people from 80-something 80, 80 countries join. Oh, my joined. God. You, you know, yeah. uh, I could do this every day. I got nothing to do all day. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we'll check in with you maybe in a few, in. Look, in a few months. Months, things have developed a little further to check back in with you and, and speak to you about, you know, your, your perception of what's happening. I like to
1: be busy, so you do me a favor, you know.
2: Anyway, thanks. This
1: was fun, run Good to see you. All right. All right. Bye-bye.
2: Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is BOF Live. Um, I hope that you enjoyed Mickey's insights. I hope you'll join us for future sessions. If you want to explore the, the upcoming event, keep checking back with us, businessoffashion.com slash events. That's all for today. Thanks again, Mickey. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.